my apologies. Um, so, as many other countries experienced um, in 2020, in March 2020, the UK entered a lockdown and shut down large parts of the economy. That was obviously unprecedented, and there was a lot of information about what the impact of that was going to be. Not only that, but things were moving so fast that every day and every week um, things would, would change. And the fastest of official statistics, typically uh, one of the fastest is, is GDP, which is published uh, first version 25 days after uh, the end of the, the period. But even that, you know, was maybe not quite fast enough to understand what was happening. So, um, Um, what happened was a data scientist um, in government rushed to try to fill the gaps and they turned to a number of uh, real-time indicators to try and understand what was happening. Um, one place where that uh, had a big impact was the ONS, uh, where they developed the faster indicators uh, series that was made public um, on the back of some previous work they'd done experimenting data science and faster indicators. Um, that included things like online job vacancy data, uh, credit and debit card, uh, payment data from consumers. Uh, that was uh, very influential. Another place where that sort of work happened in government was in the Department of Business, Energy and Industrial Strategy, uh, which created an advanced analytics team the very beginning of lockdown, obviously that's where I worked, actually where Sherman worked, um, we're moving on to health and the other very important things there during the pandemic. Um, I mean, the work there as well, the work there was about um, developing new, um, new indicators, faster indicators for internal consumption. Uh, these were not made public, Side of government, but they were available to all government ministries. It was, uh, you know, the first real time indicators were published within a week. Um, and uh, these real time indicators fed into a lot of policy decisions. Um, some of these, you know, if you think at the more micro level, uh, you had local councils that had uh, data about. People who were carers in their homes and they were able to match that with other data sets to prioritize these for access to vaccines, for example. It's more macro level. Uh, some of the RTIs produced by the ONS in the last days would have kind of informed the government uh, to what the, the states of the macroeconomic situation was, how much movement there is, how much you know, construction, how, by how much construction might dropped, you know, by how much spending might. And that informed things like support for workers, like furlough, or the um, coronavirus business interruption loans that supported businesses during, during lockdown. Um, so, moving on to real time indicators, um, I want to talk a bit about what are real time indicators. Um, there's not a precise definition exactly, but the way I think about it are uh, statistics which are updated with high frequency. Uh, and by that, I mean mainly faster than official statistics. Um, but that means that usually they would undergo less testing than official statistics. And I'd add that they 
figure always fit within the same sort of conceptual framework that, for example, national accounts are, are you know, developed in. So it's, it's a bit different. And they usually proxies for uh, things you would like to have from official statistics. Um, in terms of <coughs> how frequent uh, for policymaking, you don't really need things to be, uh, you know, every minute or every hour. Uh, usually, a frequency of daily to weekly is uh, is enough. So, um, yeah. So, can people see the slides? Okay, up there. Right, I'm trying to make it louder, but I have now managed to Moving on. Yeah. Yeah. I'll give a couple of examples of where real-time indicators are, are helpful. Uh, for example, if you want to understand what's happening in the retail sector, what you would usually use are things like retail and wholesale GDP output, you might look at consumer expenditure uh, or retail sales. Um, but in the absence of these, you could turn to things like footfall in high streets and shopping centers. In the UK, there was a startup that developed um, some indicators around that using machine learning and, uh, and um, images derived from uh, cameras in, in shopping malls, for example. Uh, consumer card spending or Google Trends. So you could look at what people are searching on Google, you know, Black Friday or uh, things like that. Um, another example is around labor markets. So traditionally you might use things like unemployment and employment um, statistics, job vacancies or uh, wages. Uh, in their absence, you could use things like redundancy notifications from employers if you know, as a government, you get these uh, in relatively real time. Uh, applications for unemployment benefits that government might have access to as well, uh, or online job vacancies, which could be web scraped from job portals, um, things like that. So <clears throat> next, I want to mention a few issues to be aware of when you do use real-time indicators. Um, that I think are quite important because they have a huge amount of um, potential, but uh, in the midst of all the excitement, it's worth keeping a few things in mind. So first of all, um, there's a, a dizzying volume of data available nowadays, and it can be quite challenging for officials to prioritize where to focus their efforts. Um, that's particularly the case because it, it takes quite a long time to develop uh, pipelines for collecting the data and cleaning the data and then reporting it. And in the midst of, midst of an emergency uh, situation, government priorities can change very quickly. So you have to think carefully about where you're going to invest your efforts. Um, officials should think about the kind of barriers that exist to accessing the data. Uh, these could be technical barriers like IT restrictions or the amount of data cleaning that's needed. Um, legal restrictions, uh, for example, if the data has sensitive information, such as uh, private data, um, or cost in the case of purchasing, um, <laughs> in, the, in the case of purchasing uh, private data. Um, and yes, so again, 
uh, officials need to think about where to prioritize their their efforts in the face of these barriers and that's not always obvious either because uh, the value of data is not always uh, known from the from the outset until it's actually been ingested and used um, so the other thing is that the speed of reporting of real-time indicators makes them particularly um, vulnerable to volatility, short-term volatility. And so uh, officials have to think about the trade-offs in terms of how uh, quick they want to report it versus the risk that they might misinterpret uh, you know, short-term swings in the data. Um, equally, the speed of uh, data collection for real-time indicators means that they're all the more subject to data revisions, which of course happens to national statistics as well. But if you're going to report them even faster, that increases the likelihood that you will have to revise it later. Um, one example where that can happen is if you are web scraping a website and the website layout changes, then the web scraping process can fail and you're gonna to have to fix it and then uh, go back and revise the data at some point. Um, Real-time indicators uh, typically, as I mentioned, undergo less testing than official statistics. And for that reason, I think it's important to think of them as complements rather than substitutes of official statistics um, at this stage. It also means that officials, um, when briefing with real-time indicators, have to be quite cautious in what they say and make clear what the uncertainties are around this data. Um, longer term, if you are going to use a new data set like this, um, it's probably a good idea to try to do some more uh, testing around the quality of the data. And finally, um, data ethics, that's an issue that affects all statistics, but it's even more salient nowadays when so much personal data is available um, one way or another. And uh, I think that's something worth highlighting because in times of emergency, that's one of the things that could be, um, you know, that, that might drop off someone's radar. Um, I want to move on now to some of the building blocks that are necessary for developing that kind of capacity. Um, and, you know, this is because uh, rapidly pivoting to exploit new data is something that can't be done overnight without a longer term investment in a lot of different things. Um, so first of all, skills. What's needed here, obviously, are data scientists and digital specialists that can exploit large data sets using modern techniques like Python, SQL, uh, R, you know, machine learning, things like that. So in the case of the UK, um, some of the efforts included the creation of new institutions, such as the Government Digital Services uh, in 2011 and the ONS Data Science Campus, which, as I mentioned, had a lot of influence. Um, they also created new uh, schemes to attract data scientists. Uh, so there's now a uh, digital data and technology uh, profession in government um, and, you know, some schemes to train people like the um, Data Science Accelerator Scheme. Um, there's also been efforts to foster data science, the data science ecosystem in the UK more widely uh, through funding of institutions like the, the Turing Institute, uh, which was labeled, you know, later during the pandemic, 
uh, they were able to collaborate with to support government analysis at a time of emergency, uh, but those that required prior investments. Um, there are still challenges in the UK. Uh, in particular, data science skills are confined to certain analytical professions. And I think something that will exist everywhere is that uh, in the civil service, um, promotions typically favor generalists. And so it can be difficult to uh, make careers attractive to very technical uh, people. Uh, and that's not even talking about the issue of salaries and comparisons with the private sector, obviously. Um, next, infrastructure. Um, what is important here is having access to cloud servers, you know, large amount of computing power and data storage, access to modern software, um, and generally also the infrastructure to link up data sets um, and uh, work jointly across government on, on data science projects. Um, the UK has made a lot of efforts. The creation of GDS in 2011 with a vision of government as a platform made a, a huge impact. And you, you know, during the pandemic, the existence in the case, for example, of DWP of um, APIs to, to query their data meant that um, other government departments were able to link up um, their data sets and find, for example, vulnerable people that needed supporting. Um, you had an increasing use of cloud servers across government, large databases stored in SQL, modern data science tools. These, these exist in, in a lot of government departments. Um, and, you know, there are uh, some schemes to improve data sharing and, and joint works, such as the Secure Research Service and the uh, integrated data service that the ONS is setting up, which should uh, improve access to data and joint work. Um, okay, however, um, data storage and coding platforms are uh, typically still specific to government departments, and there's not always a lot of communication between them, or it can be challenging in some cases. Um, and there are still a lot of practices of data being stored in formats that make it difficult to use um, in data science, like Excel, Word, or PDF documents. Um, finally, I want to talk about legal frameworks and processes. That's really important because um, processes that allow data sharing uh, across government and also sometimes with third parties such as researchers are extremely important to exploit you know, the value of the data, but you also need to make sure that they protect uh, sensitive information. Um, this is so important because when the rules are not existent or unclear, uh, officials can quite quickly default to not sharing data rather than sharing it. So um, that's quite a, a tricky one. Um, one thing I'll mention is the Digital, Digital Economy Act in 2017 that was uh, intending to um, improve data sharing across government. And uh, there was a lot of reports as well during COVID-19 of increased um, sharing of data and a better culture around sharing where uh, sharing data became more the default uh, rather than the exception. However, I think one question is, will this change culture of data sharing persist after COVID-19, or is that just something that happened because it was an emergency? And finally, one other issue I think to mention is, uh, are the barriers to joint procurement of data. Because the, the, the infrastructure is separate across government, uh, and also that the process is such that it's not always obvious how to procure a data set that wants, you know, that governments can, that uh, departments can share uh, across government. So you have cases where 
um, several government departments will buy a data set of online job vacancies, uh, sometimes the same one, sometimes a different provider, uh, and they can't necessarily collaborate on this work. Um, I mean, there are cases where they have been able to, such as footfall data, but it's not always the case. Um, I'll very quickly conclude and uh, wrap up so we can move on to uh, discussion. But um, in short, RTIs can provide powerful additions to traditional statistics, um, but they are complements rather than substitutes, and there are lots of caveats around them. Um, Long-term efforts are needed to exploit them. That's not something you, need, you can start in the midst of the emergency. Um, and yeah, areas around skills, infrastructure, and legal frameworks and processes are the things you need to think about. Uh, thank you very much. Thanks a lot, David. Um, yeah, that was great. And um, provides a really nice reflection of the UK situation, but also from issues more broadly. So I think let's turn to Minister Shire and um, just to reflect on whether the presentation resonates with you, some of the challenges you faced um, in developing real-time indicators and data sharing more broadly. Um, yeah, and any initiatives you've taken to sort of improve um, data science capabilities in Somaliland. Thanks, over to you, Minister. Um, Which one? Are you a user? Um, is he a user? Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. Minister, if you can turn your mic on and unmute yourself. We did hear you clearly earlier. Otherwise, we could move on to Dr. Kalisa, but let's give the minister a couple um, seconds just to see if he can figure out his technology. Okay, um, Thierry, I'm going to move to you if you don't mind, and then we can go back to the minister afterwards. Yes, sure. Good afternoon. Hi, thank you for joining us. Thank you very much. I hope you can hear me. Can hear you loud and clear. All right, all right. So, would you want me to address the same question? Yeah, I mean, just your general reflections where the presentation resonated with you, challenges, opportunities in Rwanda. Mm. Uh, thank you very much. I think uh, if I can talk about the case of Rwanda, it, it resonates with us. Although we are, of course, not at the same level as uh, of of uh, development of data and. Uh, data analytics uh, in the UK. Uh, the presentation is uh, touching on real-time data, but I think what I'm going to talk more about is uh, high-frequency data, because uh, depending on the type of data we are using, some is more or less real-time, but definitely we are moving to that direction of, of real-time data. If I can explain a bit, um, we used to have, uh, I mean, the main indicators we are following, uh, published by our Institute of Statistics on a regular basis, but with a lag. Uh, as it was explained during the presentation, for example, GDP data is coming with a lag of um, two and a half months. And uh, that, that's, quite, that's quite long. So uh, a few years ago, at the National Bank of Rwanda, we decided to uh, put together information we have on, that we have on a monthly basis regularly uh, and compute what we call a composite index of economic activity, which became like a monthly, a monthly uh, uh, indicators. Uh, that's pretty much very much co correlated with, uh, with, with uh, the GDP. So this composite index of economic activity was um, 
putting together information that we get on exports and imports on turnovers uh, mainly and many other indicators on monthly basis. Then came COVID and in 2020, when we uh, started monitoring the impact of the economy and we're trying to address issues related to uh, what is happening on real-time basis, even the monthly indicators were not enough. So we decided to move to uh, weekly data. Uh, basically what we did um, is uh, collaborate with uh, institutions like the Rwanda Revenue Authority and the Ministry of Finance uh, to um, make um, some of the data we're receiving on monthly data available on monthly basis available on daily basis, uh, especially the turnovers, uh, electronic billing machines data, uh, information coming from operators, uh, businesses that are using these electronic billing machines to um, invoice VAT. So that's uh, the basis. And then we also use weekly data for exports and imports to compute again, the same kind of indicator, which is a weekly index of economic uh, activity. So we moved from, uh, from monthly um, data to weekly monitoring of the economy. And we even had a weekly report that was going to um, policymakers for discussion, uh, including uh, going to the cabinet whenever they were, they were discussing measures to take uh, during the COVID situation. Uh, so lockdowns, curfew, and all that. Um, they were receiving reports, both from the health situation, what's going on, number of cases, etc., and from us, uh, the economic side, um, with this weekly uh, data. So it has been very useful since then. And uh, the move uh, since um, 2020 is towards getting more and more data uh, on a more regular basis. And I acknowledge the, the issues that were raised during the presentations. We are facing the same. Sometimes this data is not that accurate. The revisions coming after I like, but uh, we learned how to use that uh, by uh, basically also uh, using that with caution and when, whenever we present that, present that as just indicative waiting for uh, final monthly or, or um, quarterly data. So I can talk more about, uh, about it, but I think that's a bit uh, overall the use of it from an economic point of view. We also had um, more recently access to uh, now big data and we put in place a, a data science team uh, within our statistical uh, department that is actually trying to um, better use this uh, uh, big data we get on week, on daily basis and even uh, more often from the banking sector, including access to um, bank account, uh, opening of bank account, et cetera. So this data is being used uh, to monitor financial sector development. Uh, and we managed to, um, the team managed to, to, to develop uh, uh, algorithm and, and so on to be able to uh, better have a, a view on more regular basis on uh, what's access to finance in Rwanda instead of waiting for a report that was uh, using a survey done every four years. So these are a few examples of how, how we use uh, high frequency and real-time indicators. Thank you. Excellent, thanks so much, Thierry. Um, so Minister Shire, I think um, I can see your name there. Are you now able to um, unmute yourself? Hmm. Okay, we did hear the minister's voice earlier, but no longer. Um, so I'm gonna then pass it over to Ed. Um, yeah, I mean, obviously you've got similar exposure to David, but um, just any reflections on David's presentation or anything else you wanna add from the ONS's side? Uh, sure, thanks. I suppose 
As with David, I broadly agree with all of the points that you made, which is, I'm sure, a relief. Um, uh, oh, and also noting uh, the ONS does uh, have an ongoing partnership with uh, colleagues in Rwanda and the National uh, National Statistics Agency there. Um, I suppose there's sort of, I've scribbled down sort of four reflections that, um, that I had that I think might be worth sharing. The first one on uh, real-time indicators is the kind of the need for a kind of theoretical framework to place them in. That's one of the things I always stress is that you need, yeah, some kind of, you know, uh, understanding uh, of, yeah, what they, what the kind of causality is, what the impact is, to kind of clarify, to understand, and to interpret them. Uh, with something like COVID, when you're shutting down, you know, an enormous part of your economy, it's going to be very hard to miss that in anything that you collect. Uh, but yeah, it's, it's about the interpretation, the need for a kind of uh, theoretical framework. It's a kind of similar point to, I don't know if any of you ever read The Signal and the Noise, that Nate Silver book uh, from a decade ago or so, about how you combine different kinds of information or sort of your hard quantitative you know, national statistics, and then the more qualitative insights uh, and the, you know, the, the new real-time indicators. So you, you need that, otherwise you're, I don't know, splashing around and you don't really know what to do with the, these new indicators. Um, in terms of then the role that they play um, in, in policymaking and in communication, um, well, one of them actually is in, in communication. One of the things they, they work nicely as in terms of complement to traditional statistics is in uh, providing a, you know, a communication hook, something that's kind of very understandable, something that has quite high impact. And so they, they, they can play a role in that way. Um, I think similar to, um, to what you found in Rwanda, uh, they provide quite useful insights into, into behavioral uh, behavioral shifts that are happening sort of faster than your uh, traditional statistics. And then they also have this kind of, these composite indicators have a value in sense checking and kind of quality assuring your traditional statistics. Um, so yeah, they have these sort of, I suppose, unexpected, unexpected benefits. Specifically in, in COVID as well, there was, their use in terms of bringing in um, kind of outsider analysis, which is quite powerful in the UK. So you only have a limited kind of capacity and bandwidth yourselves in your departments and governments to, to kind of analyze and make sense of this stuff. But by you know, releasing more and being kind of more as open as possible with your statistics and data, sort of statistics as a platform rather than a kind of product, you're able to kind of get much more kind of back from this kind of community, your academics or citizens, whoever. Those are kind of was a, a really kind of powerful, unexpected benefit of, of more use of kind of real-time indicators and kind of greater openness of uh, the way we're kind of using data. Um, uh, yes, your point is well made on risk aversion around, around data sharing. I don't know what to say about that, other than that there is this very asymmetric risk uh, versus kind of reward um, aspect, which has come up in, in this kind of talks throughout the day. Sort of ultimately it's politics all the way down in terms of senior level cover to be able to kind of to, to take risks and, and kind of invest the time um, in order to kind of improve these things uh, which potentially nobody notices if it goes well um, and so yeah you, you do need that kind of cover 
And then maybe the final observation I had uh, was to really kind of emphasize the, the point you were making about it being a whole ecosystem. You can't do this stuff from the standing start. Um, you would you spoke about our time in the Department of Business. Um, we, you know, going back to at least sort of 2013, uh, that was sort of the sort of beginning of a of a data science culture being built there in ONS from at least 2017 in a much larger scale. You can't do this stuff from a standing start. Uh, and it's a whole ecosystem. You need the, the senior vision uh, and, and buy-in to give you capacity and permission uh, to work in this kind of space. But then you, you know, you also need this other collection of things, you know, whether it's a, a three-legged stool of infrastructure and tools, a kind of community of practice, uh, a kind of peer support and training, uh, and then real business problems to kind of work on. And if you don't have that to embed this, you know, capability and grow that, then very difficult to sort of, you know, just turn it on or even be an intelligent customer uh, if, you know, you're wanting to kind of buy in this, uh, uh, these kind of capabilities. Um, and it's not just data scientists. It, it is also a whole family of professions. You can't just hire two or three data scientists and say, tremendous, let's get on with this. It's about, you know, your, your relationships across silos with your IT departments, with data engineers, on onto the policy side so it, it's it's difficult because it happens at all levels of the organization from the very senior to the very junior uh, uh and you know this kind of uh, organizational and cultural transformation is very hard um we all know they're very hard um but yeah there's no like one simple thing it's the kind of thing you have to uh acknowledge as an ecosystem problem and keep chipping away at and then you're able to suddenly oh out of nowhere uh, do something new and interesting and reap these sort of uh, benefits. There you go. Uh, those are my kind of reflections. Interesting, thank you. Well, it's very interesting. Um, okay, I'm going to give us one last shot. Um, Mr. Are you able to speak? I can see you've unmuted yourself. Okay, that's unfortunate. Um, if you do, if you are able to speak at any points, Please come in. Maybe you can leave the meeting and reconfigure your mic um, if you can hear us. Okay. Um, that does mean we have a lot more time for Q&A and comments from those in the room and those online. Um, so does anyone have any burning questions they want to ask at this stage? Um, I have a few more, if not, but maybe we can hear from anyone here. Um, reflections also most welcome, would be really interested to hear what the IMF is doing on this. So um, let's go to Nicholas first, I saw a hand there. Just uh, one common slash question. Um, the common is about uh, my own experience in Ministry of Finance in, in France, and we definitely have requests for real-time indicators all the time. That doesn't mean those uh, requests make sense. So mm -hmm. I would definitely want to support the last comment from uh, Dr. Sherman, that having a few people there, Called data scientists to produce data doesn't uh, necessarily help, especially with nonsensical data. Uh, data scientists is not just about producing data, it's about interpreting the data and being able to say whether they make sense or not. So, as, as, I mean, from my own experience, we've already had many, many requests for, to, to compare things that are not comparable. And we need, we need to have this, this filter, which takes a bit of time 
So it's not always real time to say, well, actually, that doesn't make sense. You you, you need to you, you, you need to review your, your report. And my question uh, uh, on that is, how do you do that in the UK? I mean, do you have like a uh, uh, an evaluation of the the, uh, the how much this indicator makes sense? Does it is it something that is in place to to keep you from producing data that is uh, non scientific? Okay, let's take a few more questions, but yeah, that, that one is a key issue. Um, okay, I'm going to go to James and maybe just introduce yourself and your organization. I, I know you you did make a comment in the other room, but just again. Uh, sure. Hi, everyone. I'm James. I said earlier I'm working as an independent consultant. Now, uh, I guess I will declare an interest um, that during the first half of the pandemic, I was working in the cabinet office on the receiving end of a lot of this data in the team that was pulling it together into a dashboard that was briefing PM uh, each day. And then uh, largely, I think, as a result of um, repeated requests to share data across organizational boundaries, Ed actually smacked that on the head and hired me to his team. So I wouldn't um, keep requesting those things and irritating him. Um, so I guess a couple of uh, thoughts about actually coming to your point about how it gets used once it comes in. Um, with hindsight, I think it is much easier to look at like which data you get is not is not exogenous. It's not completely random. Um, we, as an example, found it much, much easier to get data from sort of government affiliated organizations. So TFL travel data, school absences, health data was very easy. Private sector data tends to have a much higher commercial value. And so when you're getting it, the questions that I'm not sure we were good at asking at the time, but that need asking are like, why are we being given this? I think the, the primary example for that is that we did not get staff absence data until staff absences became an issue. And then every supermarket in the country wants to tell us how many of their staff were un, unable to work that day. Um, there's also a, a difference between real-time data and lagged data, even if it's about the stuff that's happening at the same time. So once we started getting real-time economic data, absences, card transactions, that had huge salience. The problem was that the health data had a three-week lag because people didn't, after being exposed, they didn't go to hospital for two weeks. They tended not to die for three weeks. And so what is real-time data in that instance? It's actually much harder to see because the ground truth doesn't show itself for a few weeks. Um, I think the third thing I would say that within government, a lot of people are afraid of like cat-handed performance management. And there have been a number of instances of real-time data being used, you know, observing how things are going and then it's supposed to be purely informational and actually central government comes down and hicks people with a big hammer and says, why are you not doing this right? And so that balance of getting the data that is useful and using it in a sort of positive, intense way um, causes real damage to the ecosystem when people try and do it again. Yeah, great comments. It's nice to hear from a recipient of data as well. And I know you're also producing it, but um, okay, great. Let's take, so that was more comments. Um, so let's take um, a question here mm. and Gary. Yeah. Uh, yeah, uh, yeah. Um, no, I, I'm just thinking back to where this comes from um, in, and, and how you use this data. And I can see that, you know, at a certain point in time uh, and in certain situations, there's a strong mm. argument for using kind of informal data. But then what's the process for formalizing it? I mean, this data that you're collecting now, does that become, you know, an additional indicator that you use on a regular basis? And how do you kind of institutionalize that? And 
who's using it, etc. You know, you've in, you've invented in real time a real time tool, you know, to help fix an immediate problem. But where does it go from there? Great, thank you. Um, Okay, um, and then we can... Yeah, that's a, a few comments and, and then two questions related to uh, what we are doing at IMF. Well, in 2017, we published this book on digital public, uh, digital evolution in public finance and include a chapter on this, uh, this uh, real data. And we try to make the connection between the um, financial management information systems and how to track the economic situation that that book was financed thanks to the Gates Foundation support. So. Um, I think that after that, we are a little overwhelmed of the problems that all the data has in the public sector. And maybe we are putting now a lot of more attention on working on the basics and try to to show good data and try to have good information. And based on that, trying to move forward with these analytical tools. And in that sense, uh, my questions are for the, for Wanda and also for, for Dr. Sherman. It's a, which is the role of the treasury that uh, are you seeing in these experiences? Uh, we, I just had a, a little chat with David during the lunch, uh, and I think that the, the, the treasury and the, and the Ministry of Finance in general has a, a huge <laughs> amount of data related to uh, spending transactions, related to tax revenues. But we are not utilizing in a good way that information to make uh, decision makings. So I am really happy to, to I'm really eager to know how is the connection between these two initiatives in Rwanda and also in UK with the pressure. Okay, um, so we've got a few questions. The first one from Nicholas was in terms of <clears throat> how do you actually decide whether these make sense, the indicators that you have. Um, and how do you sort of do that in real time? Um, there was the comment, I think, on terms of getting data from the private sector was a comment, but I think it is interesting to reflect on how you collaborate better with the private sector. How do you make sure that they are um, they are actually giving government what government needs? Um, and then I have this question in terms of what is the process for formalizing data and how do you institutionalize this? Um, and then I'm going to, I'll leave that to you to start. Mm -hmm. And to Ed, and then we'll take the question also from Gerardo, from, that was to Rwanda. So Thierry, if you can come in on this and also to Ed, in terms of the role of the Treasury and the Ministry of Finance, there's a huge amount of data. Um, what do you, how do you actually utilize this data? Yeah, um, <clears throat> so in terms of how you make sure you, you filter requests for data that doesn't make sense, I think that's always quite a <clears throat> difficult one. and. Um, that's where having senior officials cover is so important um, because otherwise, yes, you end up running around in all kinds of directions um, as priorities change, uh, put in a huge amount of effort to try and get something that it turns out doesn't even make sense. Um, so, yeah, I mean, that that's where <clears throat> having strong leadership that can push back um, is extremely important. Um, and also being able to put in having a process whereby you can weigh sort of the value of the data with an initial exploration sort of phase um, before really putting in a lot more effort into getting a whole pipeline 
but that's not easy obviously because then it means you then have to revisit things and improve as, as we go but you know we talked about agile um i guess that is part of the answer probably um in terms of formalizing the process of of using this data um <clears throat> yeah that's quite a tricky one i think it it fits a bit in what i said about longer term testing of the quality of the data um given how uncertain it is you know when you first use it if it's something you're going to be using long term then you do have to try and integrate it in the you know as a more formal um reliable statistics so yeah you'll you'll want to look at how it's linked to related data um and um yeah i think the the ons have you know their uh faster indicator series and i think that's something that they're probably looking at um, you know in terms of the value of the real value of this data there are so many efforts to simplify the performance data because mm. it mushrooms so easily mm. or directed to the right people who can actually use it mm. No, and it's really catchy as well. You know, mm. if you if you've got a data set that is new and no one's seen it before, uh, it can be quite tempting to use it because you get a, a minister's attention quite quickly. Uh, of course, the risk is then if they start using it uh, and there are real consequences to that, and actually it turns out the data wasn't that great, then yeah, you're in real trouble. Mm. So yes, you really have to caveat it uh, a lot. Um, I'll let the other comment, I guess, on HMT, but I'll just very quickly say that um, on that, I think probably the function of finance ministries um, probably matters a lot in how they use data science, because um, some finance ministries are maybe more, you know, maybe have a lot more operational, a much more operational role, in which case they will have access to a lot of uh data but i think hmt while it does have access to a lot of data they're a very strategic uh department and in that sense i i don't know to what extent they themselves have direct access to underlying very valuable micro data whether that's the kind of information that is in hmlc for example and that's where a lot of the data science might might happen but that's my um my intuition not obviously not working in HMT myself. Um, I'm going to hand over to Thierry to answer that question. He was also yeah. with the Ministry of Finance before joining the National Bank of Rwanda. So, Thierry? Uh, yes, thank you. I think um, for the Ministry of Finance or, or National Treasury, um, perhaps in the future that's an area to explore. Uh, I think the first step, at least for uh, countries in developing countries would be to build and to integrate the system uh, of payment and um, uh, in what in what we have in Rwanda, which is called uh, IFMIS, um, Integrated Financial Management Information System. I think that's 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 if I recall right. The idea is um, to be able on real time to actually do a transaction. Uh, uh, Whereas uh, in the past, it, everything had to be done um, using cash and uh, transport and signatures and uh, art, art paper and so on. So that's the first step. Now this is done. It is uh, helping to compile data 
and to have accuracy in terms of uh, government spending. But still, it's still a huge uh, amount of data and uh, uh, the compilation that the Ministry of Finance is on for the moment on quarterly basis with a couple of months like um, for us and other users of the data it, it's not bad because still you can use that for modeling purpose but yes in the future perhaps this can be uh, this this gap and this uh, frequency of reporting can even be uh, uh, reduced i think i do believe also like um, uh, I think it was mentioned that it's easier to um, to use real-time data coming from revenue authority uh, because there you have actually even granularity in terms of um, if it's VAT data or the type of, um, let's say, the type of um, product that is being bought every day, uh, the um, economic classification of it. Uh, right now, for example, our data science team is, is working with the revenue authority to try to see if we cannot use this electronic billing machine data as uh, as uh, early indicators for, uh, for 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 CPI for consumer price index instead of waiting for the monthly publication. So you can even have an idea of prices every day if you really manage to deal with uh, all the issues related to this data. We're not yet there, but I think it's easier uh, to use revenue authority data. But I do agree that uh, more can be done on the side of the Ministry of Finance. Great. Thanks so much. Um, let me take another round of questions. Um, oh, I'm sorry. Which which question would you like me to reflect on? The, the Treasury. So. No, you know, in the UK context around uh, the finance ministry, the kind of treasury, I guess the, as David points out, you know, actually it's our HMRC, it's our kind of uh, tax collection authority that has a lot of that data. But, you know, the issues in the UK are, are, the, are the issues of, of legacy and risk management. So we've got a very old, you know, uh, HMRC organization, we've got very old treasury, we've got very old statistics agency. And so it's about kind of, you know, slowly updating those processes. And that was, you know, recognized in things like the Bean Review that David spoke about at the beginning, uh, in terms of going around, going through big transformation programs about how we, uh, how we collect our inflation statistics, for example. But it's not the kind of thing we can bring online very quickly, uh, it has to be quite, you know, the handover has to be seamless. Um, so I think we recognize that there's an, in government that there's an issue about needing to do more in terms of collecting better data and in terms of sharing data and progress is being made. Um, one of the things I point out actually is that, that we always struggle with this point. Um, so I, I've just come back from parental leave and because I'm tragically sad, I was flicking through an old John Maynard Keynes book at one point, um, how should the war be paid for? And so this is back in the 1940s and he's reflecting then about how frustrating it is that the, the finance ministry of the day had not been collecting particularly relevant or accurate GDP data, which made it enormously difficult in a crisis situation to, to manage, you know, public finances and so on. And this sort of like cycle, like, it seems to me, keeps repeating itself, whether it's the great financial crisis, the, the impact of kind of COVID-19, we're always kind of looking for 
more and better, or what I suppose Henny was referring to uh, in the first session is the sort of magic button mm -hmm. uh, that will give us that data. So I don't know, maybe it's reassuring that we it's the same problem, just repeated uh, in different decades. Um, yeah, we can talk about how we make sense of RTIs later, maybe. Um, okay, so let's see if anyone else has anything they'd like to contribute or ask our panelists or ask each other. That's fine too. Hello. Hi. Um, <laughs> I'm very glad you managed to connect. Finally, you fine. I had a problem with my mic. I see. Oh, Thanks. Uh, yeah, but, uh, but I've, I've been following, so. I haven't missed okay. anything. Um, I just would like to be brief. Uh, I'm Saad Alishira, the Minister for Finance. I think there are two departments I would like to mention within the ministry, which are relevant to this topic. One is uh, statistics department, and the other one is the IT department. Now, before we prepare the budget every year, the statistics department produces a number of macro indicators. But these are based on traditional way of collecting data. Uh, we produce quarterly, semesterly, annual data. We don't use real data for policy making. We use in the traditional way. We have a very prominent uh, IT department and we have digitalized all our operations. Uh, the revenue operations, expenditure, treasury, debt, and everything that allows me to follow the performance of all these parameters on daily basis. I have a dashboard and I can see how revenue is performing compared to what was forecast. There is you know, a deficit of the surplus. Uh, but we don't, we don't make any uh, fiscal policy on the basis of these, of, these, of, the, of these dashboards. We only make uh, decisions when there's a trend. There's a trend, an upward trend or a downward trend, and that takes time. Then we make the, we take the necessary the necessary steps. Uh, if, for example, a certain station is not performing as well as it should, then I take a, the the managerial decision to do something about. You know, not not a policy decision, but rather a technical managerial decision. You know? And uh, we have been really very lucky by getting support from the UK and from the World Bank in developing our you know, financial information system. And it has made our operations more efficient, less costly, less cumbersome, and really great. But it has also its own challenges. Uh, one of the challenges, for example, is the uh, storage, the data. And another uh, challenge is uh, data security itself. And power outage, sometimes we have power outage in like <laughs> the UK, and that stops everything, you know? Um, Reliance on external technical support, another problem. Even reliance on few technical local uh, technicians is a problem because they can be poached. You have really to cling to them, you know, otherwise they will leave you. And for the cost of the system and, ma and maintenance, and the technology is changing continuously. You know, it's a, you know, it's the race. It doesn't stop there. You know? So you have always to be on top. Or you know, move to or you know, face out to new developments and things like that. So, so I think what digitalization is very important, uh, even though we don't make any uh, economic policy decisions. These, but I think you know they have been very uh, important in terms of efficiency gains and transparency and accountability. Thank you.
Excellent. Thanks so much. Um, so I guess that does beg the question of, you know, given those capacity constraints that you've mentioned, whether this production of real-time indicators, if they aren't necessarily informing um, policymaking and, you know, you're waiting a significant time for trends to develop, whether this couldn't potentially be seen as a distraction in certain contexts. Um, I think maybe my bias is slightly different um, from David and the other panelists, um, but whether we shouldn't be focusing on improving the quality of official statistics before this. So I guess maybe just some reflections on that from Somaliland and mm -hmm. Rwanda in terms of a developing country companies. Yeah. Um, I think you have to judge all data collection uh, on economics. It's cost effective. Spend time and money in the collection of the data, but then is it worth it? They justify, you know, all the costs. The benefits justify all the costs. That's really a question. I mean, this could be a new trend, you know, something which is new, which everybody wants to jump on it. You have to be really very careful and ask yourself what are the benefits, what are the additional benefits compared to the cost in terms of manpower and capital. Yeah, I think that's a very important consideration. Um, and Thierry, do you have any thoughts on that? No, I totally agree. I think uh, the, the trend is towards um, the need and the demand for more data. And uh, if, if this trend continues, you need to hire statisticians, um, uh, enumerators and so on. And at the end of the day, you can't follow this trend. So I think what we are trying to look at is how to digitize some of the surveys actually. So there are, there are surveys that are being done on quarterly basis. And if more data is needed, maybe we can do it on monthly or weekly basis using tools like SMS survey, online ways to um, collect data. Uh, that's how it complements the real-time indicators complement the actual surveys that can remain on quarterly or semester or, or annual basis. So I think there's a cost component that is very important to take into account, while uh, the quality aspect is also important. So the quality of, of uh, official statistics and on our uh, for us is not that of a concern because it passed through rigorous um, uh, uh, validation, check, and so on. We have a problem of quality of the real-time indicators, uh, but that's, that's known. So actually, if you work towards improving the quality of the real-time indicator to get close to the quality of the official statistics, they, may, they can be complementing each other. Yeah, I think that's a great point. Um, Michelle? Yeah, maybe it's interesting to hear this. And I mean, one thing I want to come back to, I think is Ed's mention of a need for a theoretical framework, because partly there's a ton of information out there right now. and. I was talking with a friend from Amazon who sits on a ton of information. He's like, we can't use all of it. So he's like, we need a framework for when we when we act on it and what we're collecting. And I'm just trying to think about the different things. And there's ongoing core work, like um, uh, like Mr. Kalisa mentioned, in terms of sort of economic statistics, which is one thing, right? It happens quarterly. Maybe then you use supplemental checks when it comes to the real-time stuff to see direction where you're going, try and reduce the errors and see where you're going. And to as as I believe the Swami minister said, he doesn't make the minister, he doesn't make the decisions based on that information, but can be a check on what that is. But that's kind of like economic, which I think is actually separate from the fiscal data, which I think probably has things like treasury management, cash management, real time, what your balances are, where things are flowing up and down through the economy, and how you can use that. And I think I would put, I think we oftentimes use COVID here, but that 
is helpful, but I think only to a point, because I think those are very specific needs or initiatives that come up on a one-off basis to sort of matching what you need. That, that I don't think it's possible to anticipate those things as much. Maybe, but maybe if you had a theoretical framework, you could, right? Which is, this is the information that's available to us if we choose to go out and look at it and, you know, hopefully there isn't another pandemic or something somewhere right away, but you can find other ways in which you then, because I, the other part to, to a little bit what a couple of the ministers are saying as well, I think is that, and the capacity constraints, not, I think, just simply from a, do people know what to do? I think that, that in a developing country and also in any country, there's only so much a civil servant can do, right? And to make sense of what's coming in and out there, I just think that there have, you have to have parsimony about what you end up acting on when there's so much that out there. So um, I think the theoretical framework for that, so you have theory informing the action on terms of what's doing, and you probably won't get it right immediately, but that you at least have one direction to go in. And those are different types of data when it comes, I think, when it comes to economic and fiscal. And then you know, I think uh, we mentioned, I think the huge amount of money, the upfront money, the information that sits in the revenue authority in particular, which you can use for sort of administrative data using for sort of social or analytical purposes. But that's, an, and again, that's another different area that I think you would probably go into versus the some of the other buckets that you might want to use. And so, I'm sorry, I didn't push on from the gates Great. Um, do you have any reflection on that? Is, is there any sort of, I mean, maybe if you can come in any sort of theoretical framework that's ONS applies, um, anything here around this? Um, is it related to the formula? I think. Yeah, that, that kind of question about how you make make sense of it, how you make sure it makes sense and how you quality assure it. Um, I'm not sure I've got a like a hugely uh, comprehensive or convincing art, art, you know, answer in the ONS in terms of its faster indicators. I mean, we're an old stats authority. We have our processes for like you know slowly validating and uh, approving you know these things, which is what the faster indicators are going through as they get trimmed down. But as we were first exploring them, you know, that was a there was a process of dialogue between ourselves and Bayes, colleagues in the ONS, colleagues in the Bank of England about okay, well, which way's up here? Like what's the, you know, what's caused, what's effect, what makes any kind of sense? And you, yeah, that has that'll emerge slowly over time. But you're right, you, this is why I stress the need for one because otherwise you're swamped in this kind of I think there are, you know, there are a free existing range of different frameworks that you can fit this into. I mean, one is, you know, program and performance budgeting, for example, you know, where people are trying to bring finance and performance statistics together. And there's been a long process to try and refine what indicators you actually want to collect and their relevance. You know, that's at one level. You know, within that, there are, you know, specific ministries that have their own frameworks for, you know, managing their programs at a more granular level. And then you've got the accounting frameworks and government statistics. There are all these frameworks that this can, you know, I think you just need to position it in relation how it's going to be used within those frameworks and what's the what's the process that you go through to get this, you know, that you know that you've got the right data and that you've got the quality. Um, so I think if you make use of existing frameworks, that'll probably take you quite a long way. Yeah, I think the difficulty is the when to act on the data and making that decision and having some sort of metric for that decision making process. Well, so this is where um, your real time indicators that are used for buying you time. 
um, in terms of like, uh, as a government official, you know, you want to show that, you know, we're aware of the situation and monitoring the situation. Uh, you know, we've got these initial indicators in this wall. I mean, this starts your kind of set of internal conversations of bringing your stakeholders together, but also then buys you, you know, you're, you're in the insights game then, mm. but that buys time for, you know, the rest of your colleagues to kind of catch up with maybe more robust thinking mm. or more robust statistics about, okay, mm. okay, what framework do we use here to understand mm. what's going on? That's, That's one of the ways that is kind of insights nudge and things like that. I didn't mean know. nudge, but uh, <laughs> well, uh, maybe it may be relevant in that. I, I mean, quite possibly. Yeah. I mean, one just to, to just weigh in on this one, one issue I think in terms of developing these frameworks, especially when things well, when things are moving fast, especially but obviously more generally, is that some of the people who have the skills to collect this data and do the work and make judgments about how easy or difficult it might be to get this, um, you know, are not always the same people who have a more strategic view um, and able to think through the conceptual framework um, around that. So, you know, you'll have data scientists, you know, operational researchers, statisticians who, you know, granted, will we'll, you know, may have actually good knowledge of national accounts like that. But, um, you know, if you think of people in Treasury with maybe a, who have a conceptual framework for how they want to think about the economy, they don't, they are not necessarily the kind of people who have the technical skills to do this data science work. So you also need to think about how these groups of people communicate and that can be quite challenging sometimes. I mean you're right it's a team sport and like, a team sport? you need say I don't know uh, someone to provide the kind of macroeconomic view to understand what's going on with demand and consumption. It's almost like you're saying you need economists to do data science. <laughs> yeah <laughs> uh, it's a team sport. <laughs> no, yeah I fully agree with this uh, like the to different level of strategic and then more operational and we can we can think in that okay economic policy in the strategic level and more fiscal operation on the fiscal management and revenue on, on the operational side but all these issues are related to the policy makers uh, and i think that one of the challenges that we have in public finance and in the digitalization of public finance is how to get more support from line ministers and from the society in general. Because if not, we will still discuss enough among us here and we are 15 persons. So it's, a, it's not enough critical mass to move forward. So from your point of view, uh, David and Ed, how we can connect these real-time indicators with the citizens and how we can connect this with the line ministers, with the agencies in the public sector. There is some opportunities to produce some kind of information related to public finance that in a real time that could help to improve the transparency and the governance for the citizens and the management at the agency level. Yeah, um, in terms of the ministers, definitely. I mean, one of the risks if is kind of to the point that Nicola was saying was, uh, you know, it is really useful to make this data available to ministers. I guess the risk is if you make it available to them too much, it becomes a bit like candy, it's a bit addictive. Probably always want more of that kind of stuff. 
Um, so yeah, you do need to to filter it. Um, yeah, having oh god, I forgot. I was going to say something, and then um, yeah, having senior buy-in is uh, yeah very important in terms of the citizens. Yeah, I think that's where open data is so important. Um, during the COVID-19 crisis, I know we'll keep going back to that, but that's just the example here. Um, the UK did make a number of publicly available dashboards that gave information about the current state of things, and that probably did help a lot to build uh, trust in government um, and also help people in terms of their, their behaviour and how they react to government uh, decisions. Um, but yes, that, that is quite difficult. Trying to think again about what the other point was. But. I wonder if um, the Minister or Dr. Lisa have any thoughts on that? And if you were able to yeah. hear clearly. If I may come in, uh, I think while in theory, the more data you have, more recent data you have, the better the decision. I'm just wondering, uh, is it possible that using real data may mislead you? Because you may have you know, some temporary factors that create a certain situation, and then you make policies on the basis of that, but that's not that's not government at all. There's that risk. Yeah, great. And um, Dr. Lisa, I don't know if you want to add anything there. I think it was. Uh, I think I think it was covered. Uh, the kind of data uh, when when we talk about maybe one thing I can add is when we talk about transparency. I think it has also to do with because um, when we talk about sharing the data, it's to who can use that and uh, who can make use of that and for the public it has to be explained in a way that also uh, it, it, it's understandable. So I'm, I'm not sure that real-time data in the case of Fisco, for example, will be very useful for the public in general. It's very useful for, 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 for researchers, be useful for economists, be useful for, for, for uh, statisticians. But I think um, more importantly for the public is to consolidate this data in a report that makes sense uh, and to report on the activities of, for example, what the government has done in a way that everyone can understand and not only the economists and the statisticians, etc. Excellent. Yeah, I think that focus on the end use and the end purposes is really crucial. I mean, deciding what data you actually want to focus on getting in real time and what is most useful. Um, okay. Um, Sorry, if I could just just uh, interject. So I'm, I'm Matthew Olivier from, from Free Balance, and so uh, we, we provide the, the technology behind the BFMIS solutions. And I think to, to your point, Gerardo, is uh, I, I think actually the ministries and the treasuries, this is sort of where the low hanging fruit is in terms of, of being transparent and, and sharing information publicly, because, you know, if you have the right IFMIS, if you have the right um, systems in place, then by default, you already have data that is transactional by nature. It's being processed in real time. Um, what we've done is help some of our customers communicate that publicly. So through transparency portals mm -hmm. that are tied directly to the, the operational, to the transactional system. Um, and that means that um, citizens can go to a website, uh, the media can go to a website, donors, anybody interested, stakeholders can go to the website, drill down specifically into the transactional system uh, through kind of all of the different pieces of the, the chart of accounts, find out what's been sp spent on education, what's been spent on on health, 
if there is some kind of an infrastructure project in my neighborhood, I can drill down and see what was budgeted, uh, how much has been spent, uh, what the timeline, uh, citizens can post photos of, of progress. Um, so I think, you know, the, the data is there the, from the systems. Mm. And I think in many ways that that really is the low hanging fruit. And I, I think more governments ought to be opening up transparency portals to do just that. Yeah, I mean, I think that that's also about how the data is presented and if yeah. it is usable and accessible. Mm. Of course, yeah. If, um, yeah. Go ahead. So tying that back to your question earlier about, you know, whether it was worth investing your effort in, in real-time indicator space or traditional statistics, I suppose that the point I make is that you know you it's the same infrastructure in terms of that sort of like rather messy fixing the plumbing kind of point it's the same sort of skill sets and sort of infrastructure so i don't see them as being fundamentally intentional mm -hmm. i think so to be able to you know do an example like was just described yeah you're yeah you're not uh losing the ability to have official statistics uh, that's not the expense thing mm -hmm. um, and I, I guess there is an aspect of where these sort of statistics can build capacity to be, improve official statistics later on. Yeah, that's the hope, definitely, yeah. Um, okay, um, I saw a notice that it's the same about power turning off. I'm sorry, just maybe if it comes up again, you can have a look. Thanks, Dan. Um, <laughs> okay. So is there any other questions in the room or online? Um, as I said, comments are also very welcome, reflections. I have a final comment if anybody else I will give you final comments in five minutes. Um, go ahead, James. So I guess I have a, a question about what level we're thinking of this being most useful at. I think maybe the fact that we're, what, a mile and a half away from Westminster makes us think that actually the best use case for this is policy decisions. And it's, you know, it's not worth producing unless a minister makes a decision on it and actually, like, much more rigorous economic strategic indicators are probably the the reason we want to make like big policy changes you can imagine a sort of meso level of operational response group where like you might actually be changing your staffing levels you might be changing your procurement in response to like much more recent indicators if you have indications of huge numbers of births you might want to upstaff your your pharmacies if you have you know a number of people who are absent from workplaces and you can get that data then you might want to upstaff one 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 um, if you have like significant spending in bars, you might want to put more police officers on the next day. Like I can imagine there are lots of public sector responses that you might want to make in real time. And I get, I guess my impression is that that's what Amazon and Uber and really like data driven private sector companies are doing. They're not looking at, oh, how many rides have we done today? We should make a major policy change. They're actually building systems that can dynamically respond to real time indicators with real time operational responses rather than necessarily policy changes. Mm -hmm. I think that's why then the, the regular operations, like a company still needs, just like a government needs sort of its quarterly forecasts or its annual forecast around the budget. And then you have more practical decisions that you can use to inform certain things. So, you know, in terms of um, maybe it's the UK's policing and bar, <laughs> I guess, but you, you can have very specific ideas around that. but. Putting that in place up front, I think, is really important because otherwise, there are quite a few limitless things that you could do. And then, where in, and I think that's where maybe this is also sort of in the staffing portion, which is slightly different, that you could have specialists who do this. But I tend to think it should be part of your daily business. So, the person who, who's responsible for deploying police officers or whatnot is the one who thinks about what they need to improve their job performance rather than making it. Hyped off. There's probably a little bit of a mix, but just in terms of what that balance would be, I think I'd seen that in one of the earlier um, 
I think it was in the UK, saying about the, how you stack that and how, in under constraints, you would do so probably in a developing country. But I think it's a good point. I mean, those, those, yeah. Yeah. No, but just following the, the, that idea, I think in, in specifically in, in the public finance, I think that we have certain challenges that could be tackled by using this real data. Uh, for example, one of the main problems that developing country has is the generation of arrears during the budget distribution. Yeah. And the problem is the fiscal forecast is wrong. So when you have the fiscal revenue, the fiscal the revenue projection that is wrong, during the year you started to cut the budget, but in fact the, the health and the education sector is still spending, so you generate a lot of arrears. So if we can think in a certain way to start it to publish and to start it to check the revenue forecast more timely and to see also the GDP projections more timely, I think that we can put that information in the public domain and try to generate a more uh, consensus to see, you know, guys in the government, you will not uh, get the resources. So we need to adjust this in the middle of the year or something like that and try to avoid all these problems with the arrears, with the debt that we have in the next fiscal year and that kind of things. So uh, I think there's a lot of opportunity to, to, to think on how to use these uh, real-time indicators, but it's important to identify two or three critical issues that you can be focused and you can try to show the, the results of these uh, things in the public finance. Uh, I think one of the most difficult challenges is to you know, relate financial information to actual performance information, you know, the impact yeah. that services are having, the impact that that money is having, because often it may not even be very closely related. Yeah. You know, so, but, I mean, it may be still interesting, but I mean, to your question, there are so, most certainly different levels at which this data can be used, but then it needs to be kind of organized and directed to the, the program manager within a ministry who's responsible for or the metropolitan policy, whoever, um, to use that data to improve the quality and management of that service, which could be at a very micro level. Mm -hmm. yeah. I think this is a very good first step to thinking more strategically about and like systematically about when this data can be used and what it's useful for in public finance. Mm -hmm. um, I don't think there's like that's definitely not clear to me at all. So. Yeah. Um, Okay, I'm going to ask for closing comments from the panelists. Um, I'm going to go in the same order. So, David, if you can start first. Um, thanks. Uh, thank you, everyone. There were a lot of really interesting observations uh, that made me think a lot about how we need to use this sort of data. Um, some of the things I would like to conclude on. Um, you know, around what James was saying, you know, that there are a lot of applications for this sort of data if you were to create rules so that things, you know, uh, get optimized um, and decisions get taken on the basis of it. There's so much potential for that, for sure, sort of operational decisions. Um, but obviously where it gets tricky, I think, in the public sector is that um, you can, I think, probably get quite quickly to a gray area where some decisions are really not controversial to automate to decisions where actually, you know, where do you need a human in the loop um, to weigh in on these things, especially, uh, you know, in terms of democracy and accountability of the public sector. So, you know, we're not in an age where we're gonna let AI make 
to see policy decisions. But yeah, the border between operational policy is yeah. uh, something we need to be really careful careful about and not get overexcited. Um, I think uh, we're uh, the other thing is um, this for me raises the issue of recruitment of the right um, people to do this work. Um, how do you make the public sector attractive to people who have these skills? Not just the skills to develop all of this, but the skills to critically um, receive this data, interpret it, and um, again, not get overexcited. Um, and um, yeah, I think the, the PFM is an area right for this. As you mentioned, there's so many applications terms of forecasting, now casting. I think uh, when we were talking, I was mentioning fraud detection, automated sort of labeling of um, transactions, clustering, all kinds of stuff could be done. So um, yeah, we should we should look a lot more into this. Thank you. Um, I'm actually going to hand over to Thierry because he needs to leave. So Thierry, any final reflections from you, please? And thank you very much. I think this is an important conversation and uh, very interesting. Uh, what I can say is that at least on the side of um, Rwanda or let's say some developing countries that are trying to use uh, real-time data, uh, of course there are challenges. But the first the first step is to have the data, and um, we are lucky that actually we have a national institute of statistics who and uh, others like Revenue Authority who have automated the system and have data. Uh, for example, official statistics available, but also real-time or more frequent indicators that we can get uh, from them. So revenue authority, especially for trade data, for uh, turnovers and et cetera. We also have the banking system, which is providing data. The second step is increasing and improving the quality of data. And after that is capacity building of people to analyze this data. I think we are in this step um, on these two um, quality issues and also improving uh, our own capacity to to um, analyze the data, and that's the role of data scientists and uh, uh, the, Central, the Central Bank, um, National Institute of Statistics in Rwanda, and the Revenue Authority all have data science team and they're hiring. There's also a university here that is um, uh, training on this. So um, I think that's really uh, how we can sustain this, have more people understand and treat the data uh, so that uh, policy level, then they can, um, they can uh, access uh, reliable information more regularly. Thank you. Excellent. Thanks. And thank you for bringing up the point about universities doing um, and also collaborating with governments to um, to provide governments um, with the services they require. Um, okay. I think, Thierry, if you need to drop off, please do. Thank you so much for joining us. Um, it was really insightful. Thank you very much. Thank you. Um, Ed, over to you. Uh, thank you. Um, yeah, I'd, I'd probably emphasize again how much of a whole ecosystem uh, approach is kind of required to well, build your capacity around official statistics, but also to, to produce and make use of real-time indicators. Uh, it's just always important to emphasize that and then to be thoughtful about how you're then using them. Um, in terms of use cases for them, I think uh, James is right. There's probably a lot of kind of local government operations, whether they're going to be most useful you know, if we think about how we use labor market data uh, and the move to making that more real time, you know, was the decision around a furlough affected by real time indicators? Probably not. You probably didn't need it for that, but maybe for directing policy work around uh, a supply and demand kind of move out of sync. Right? So there's areas where it's useful and where it's not useful, but yeah, you need to be quite thoughtful about that. Thank you. 
Thanks, Ed. And Minister, can I give you the final word, please? I think Have we lost the minister? Yes. Ah. All right. Well, there will be no final word then. <laughs> Thank you. Okay. Excellent. Um, we can go back to, I think, it, is it a coffee break? Yes, 15 minute coffee break. Thanks so much, everyone. Thank you.